Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of abundant grass. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling, and Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Hope everyone had a great holiday season. Did you know this episode was coming out on New Year's Day? No, I didn't think about it. I guess if I thought about it, I would have known that. The math checks out. It does. That's awesome. We'll be out doing our annual hike when this episode's released. Our communion with nature. Yeah, we'll be hugging some trees. Can't wait. So how did you feel about this topic? Like, before you did your research, what were your thoughts? I was neutral-ish. I wasn't super excited about it. I thought maybe the research would be a little tedious. But when I usually feel that, it's usually not like that at all. And this was another case of that where most of the research was actually really fun. I learned a bunch of stuff I did not expect to learn and uh, some of which is really cool. And uh, we'll get into it later, but uh, modern technology for farming is pretty amazing. Definitely. And I watched a lot of YouTube videos of people planting rice. Nice. Yeah, I thought the research for this was really interesting. I actually might have gone a little too far in certain sections. Like there were things that I just naturally wanted to really dig into. And then I ended up with many, many pages of notes. And I'm like, okay, dude, this might be too much. The second we decided to do a rice episode, I knew you'd go too far. (laughs) Why Why do you say that? You always dive so far into the, like we do an episode on miso. Like and how like to make things. 20 pages of notes later, Jason's ready to talk about miso. Yeah. Well, feel free to stop me if I, if it starts to get boring, but I thought all this stuff was really interesting. No, you're probably right. It's like, normally I am like, wow, uh, that is cool. <laughs> I started just really digging deep into the history of threshing. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> they came up with so many different types of technology over the years to make that easier, like incrementally. You know? Okay. Anyway. That'll be interesting because I, I focus more on like the modern farming versus mm-hmm. the evolution of all the different machines they've had over the years. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of you probably know a lot about rice already. It is Japan's most important crop. It's a pretty big deal, you could say. Primary staple food. For the Japanese diet for thousands of years. Yep. The way rice really ties into everything is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. When we get into the history and the cultural impact stuff, I knew a lot, but some of this stuff blows me away how connected rice is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it even, I don't know how to say it without giving away too much, but it like <laughs> ties into so many different parts of society, even outside like food, you know, it ties into everything. You could say that Japanese culture itself is derived from rice farming. Yeah. The whole thing would not be there without rice farming. You can definitely say that. It's pretty cool. Well, it's almost time to get into the history, I think, but first... Bento and Co. item of the week? Unless you oh, came did up we decide with a on, really cool name for uh, that. I yeah. was going to say I made an executive decision and decided to call it Item of the week. (laughs) Item of the week. Okay, I read your mind. But also, I got a little surprise. I made a stinger as well. I want you to hear it. Okay. Item of the week. And then it goes into this little background music, and we can talk about our stuff. Oh, wow. What do you think? I love it. Thank you. 
So yeah, this is our new segment where each episode we choose one of our favorite items from our friends at Bento & Co. and tell you all about it. Uh, Bento & Co. is a website that sells all sorts of authentic Japanese bento boxes, cookware, food. They even have some Japanese antiques on there. Did you see that, Paul? I did. That's so cool. Yeah. So this week, I want to tell you about their takoyaki pan. I saw that. It was pretty cool, right? Yeah. I haven't bought it, but I'm very tempted. I actually, I told Yi about it, and she's like, oh, you can buy whatever you want for the kitchen, but there, when I want to buy something, there's not enough room. <laughs> I was like, that's fair. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, yes. <laughs> I'm not that harsh. So what's a takoyaki pan? Uh, so takoyaki are octopus balls. Maybe you've had them. Uh, they have them at Japanese restaurants in the U.S. or like ramen shops or places like that. So when you see them made on the street in Japan, like maybe in Osaka, they make a ton of them at a time. Like they have this huge thing that can make, I don't know, like 100 takoyaki balls at a time. But these pans that you can get on the website, I think it's just the perfect size. They have like 14 little holes. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so there are actually two versions of the pan. One is induction stove compatible. That's the one I would need to get. And then the other one is not. But otherwise, they're they're both identical. They're both cast iron, so they naturally get more nonstick the more you use it. I love cast iron stuff. And if you don't like octopus, like Paul here, Paul wouldn't eat octopus, but you can put all sorts of other things in there instead. And the box even has a bunch of other ideas, like cheese or bacon, which Paul also would not eat. But you can put <laughs> veggies in there as well, if you know, if you really wanted to. I was actually considering buying one. Yeah. For... Maybe we should share one. Maybe we should get one. We can pass it back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I figured I might be able to make Abel Skeever with it. What? Danish pancakes. Oh. Like those ra- like spherical pancakes. I've never had or heard of those before. Ah, well, if you go to Askov's Rutabaga Festival, you will get some. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, it's a Danish thing, I guess, but. Interesting. My Swedish grandmother would make them for whatever that's worth. Cool. I'll have to check those out. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, I mean, takoyaki is really good and it would be fun to make it at home. I also, I got a tamagoyaki pan a couple years ago. I love that thing for like yeah. making Japanese style omelets. That's another one of those Japanese foods where you kind of need a special pan for it. But if you're worried about where to get ingredients for takoyaki, Bento & Co. even sells takoyaki flour and takoyaki sauce. Well, you don't necessarily need that stuff. I found recipes online for just using normal flour. And I even found they have a blog post all about how to make them. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you want this item for yourself, check out bentoandco.com and be sure to enter our special discount code just for our listeners, Sightseeing10 to get 10% off your order. That's sightseeing10 at bentoandco.com. By the way, Paul, I realized recently that if you type in bentoandco.com and hit enter, the default website is actually in French. I found that out as well. Yeah. So to get to English, you either have to put en dot at the beginning of the website, or you can click on where it says long. That's French for language. And then you can change it to English. It just shows an American flag. So yeah, not too hard. Or you could just use our handy link on the support us section of our website. That'll get you there. And you don't even need to enter the code then. If you use the link on our website, it automatically does the discount thing. Benjaminco.com, code sightseeing 10. 
All right, Paul, ready to talk some rice history? Yes. What do you got first? Well, before history, there was mythology. Okay. So even Japanese mythology is so heavily intertwined with rice. The sun goddess Amaterasu sent her grandson, Jimu, to be the first emperor of Japan. I remember that guy. He transformed the land from a wilderness into an abundance of rice crops, and he conquered Japan and brought rice culture to them, and he was known as a farmer and a shaman, and he would pray for a good harvest. And the Japanese imperial family to this day is said to be descended from Amaterasu. Mm -hmm. And Japanese emperors for probably ever have farmed rice and there's still a rice patty to this day in the imperial palace grounds no way yes you think the emperor himself goes out there and tends to it he apparently harvested it a few years ago and it was used in a uh, some ceremonies that's awesome yeah that's really cool huh so the emperors literally get their divine authority through rice wow i didn't know that i didn't know that either well, stepping back from the mythology for a second, should we uh, talk about the real world? <laughs> yeah, real. let's look into real history. All right. So I had stuff like even before rice came to Japan. Okay. Rice was probably first cultivated in southern China or somewhere around there as far back as 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it probably came to Japan from either China or Korea. If we're talking about inside Japan, Rice was first cultivated in Japan around 800 BC, or I saw the earliest record of rice cultivation was from around 400 BC. But either way, the late Jomon period and in Kyushu, that big southern island. Yes. So as we've alluded to, the introduction of rice had a massive impact on society in Japan. Rice didn't necessarily introduce agriculture to Japan because people had been growing other grains like millet and edible grasses for thousands of years already. But rice did cause a pretty rapid shift away from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle toward a more settled lifestyle that revolved around rice farming. And part of the reason that rice caused this instead of any other crop that came before was that rice is relatively labor-intensive to farm. So in order to farm it, people had to form these tight-knit communities and work together. Like, it really required a community to make the whole system work. It could even be argued that this is the origin of that Japanese sense of unity, harmony, and community that persists even to today. I'd always kind of wondered about that, you know? Like, why is it that Japan is so cohesive like their society is all about this you know sense of responsibility to the community and everything and i'd heard somebody like i was talking about this to somebody and they were like well it's because they're all japanese they don't have any other races there and i'm like i really don't want to think that that's the only reason you know <laughs> it's definitely more than that yeah i subscribe to this theory actually i think collectivist societies very well overlap with where rice has historically been growing and then you get more individualistic societies elsewhere. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. So rice came to Japan, but farming technology took some time to develop. Over the coming centuries, 
iron tools, new techniques, better seed strains, and fertilizer eventually improved efficiency. But even up to the Kamakura period, which started in 1183, crop failures and famine were not uncommon. That unreliability also impacted societal structures. Small, independent farmers were pretty much at the mercy of the weather to get enough water for their crops. They just had to pray for rain. And that made it almost impossible to grow rice, so most farmers instead went to work for aristocrats who had these big estates with irrigation systems. And on those estates, how did the farmers pay their taxes? It rice. Oh my goodness. Rice everywhere. Rice gets into everything. Rice was the original Japanese currency. You could say that rice became the lifeblood of society even. Yeah. So the peasants paid their taxes in rice, and the samurai got paid in rice as well. There was a unit of measurement known as a koku, which was about enough rice to feed one adult man for an entire year, which ended up being about 150 kilograms of rice. It's 330 pounds. Okay. Um, so that would be like the samurai, like you get seven koku of rice this year as your payment for being my retainer, but you can't live off of just rice, right? So they would go trade the rice for money. And that developed into these rice exchanges where merchants would get to control the change of rice for money and they would get to set those rates and help them actually gain a lot of leverage over the samurai. Yeah. But up until the Edo period, there wasn't actually a unified currency system for the entire country. Like there were all these different currencies in different parts of the country. So you could say that rice was the first universal currency in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then in the Edo period, the Tokugawa shogunate, when they taxed the daimyo, their lords in each like part of the country, they taxed them based on how much rice their land could produce. So that koku unit figures into that as well. There's a system called kokudaka that was used to determine the value of a piece of land measured in koku. Which, fun fact, was only done once at the start of the Edo era because it was expensive and difficult to do. And as changes happened, like some land would become less fertile and it'd be much harder for them to pay their quota and other lands would become more fertile and become relatively rich. Yeah, I heard a little bit about that where it's like (laughs) they determine at one moment in time, okay, you need to pay us this much rice per year. And then all of a sudden you have a bunch of years where you're not farming anywhere near that much rice. Yeah. So here's something that kind of shocked me. Did you know that up until the late 1800s, white rice was the least common type of rice produced and eaten in Japan? Yes. You did know that? I I did happen to know that one. Fine. (laughs) Brown rice was most common. And actually, white rice was reserved for the upper classes because it was more labor-intensive to make. You got to grind off all that bran to turn brown rice into white rice. Yes. But there were some good benefits to that, as brown rice is more nutritious. That is true. And for people that didn't have a very well-balanced diet, that uh, helped them out. There was actually an emperor that died because he would fast and only eat white rice and tea. 
<laughs> and he's like didn't get nutrients and he died at 20 he was a super wow. devout buddhist huh that's crazy yeah yeah i don't know for some reason when we talk about like historically you know the the meal was always like the rice the miso soup the pickles i always envisioned white rice for some reason yeah me too because that's what you get today you imagine that as oh this is the traditional food and yeah. it's similar i have eaten a lot of brown rice in my life but I've moved away from it recently. White rice is just so good. Yeah. Like I know brown rice is better for me and I want to like eat the whole grains. But when I am cooking dinner, I'm just like, I kind of want white, white rice. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've actually been mixing together like two parts white rice, one part brown rice mm. a lot. I should probably do that. But, you know, sometimes I'll just go all white just because, like I said, it's so good. Yeah. I feel like it's a little treat for myself Yeah, eat white rice. <laughs> if I eat enough rice with my meal, brown rice gets like too chewy, like too, yeah. too crunchy. Yeah. I would have died. If I was a peasant, I just would have died. I'm too soft, Jason. <laughs> brown okay, rice? Paul. I have to eat brown rice every day? Oh, my it's God. good thing we live in the modern era. Yep. Because eventually, industrialization in the Meiji period Brought white rice to the masses. Hey, now we're talking. Although it did become scarce again during and immediately after World War II. Understandable. We've talked about that a little bit, how they brought in all that wheat yeah. to make up for the lack of rice. Did you hear that in the Edo era, it became fashionable for women to use the water that rice was soaked in as a facial product to keep their skin nice? I don't know if I saw it in my research, but I remember hearing that somewhere before. Yeah. It's interesting. I suppose it maybe makes sense, like the nutrients soak off and they put it on their face. But is then I'm that... like, isn't there arsenic in rice? Like, is that, should they be? What? Is there? Yeah, but I don't know if that's a product of like modern rice farming. That's why you always have to wash your rice. Or that's one of the good reasons to wash your I rice. I don't hear anything is, about arsenic. Is to wash arsenic off. Just in trace amounts though, right? Yeah, but enough that like if you eat rice all the time, you should wash. You definitely wash your rice, unless you're buying non-wash rice because that's a thing. Sure, but yeah. So I mentioned during the American occupation after World War II, a lot of wheat came in to Japan from the U.S. to make up for food shortages. So the Japanese diet shifted a lot more in that direction. That's where like gyoza and ramen got a lot more popular. And even in kids' lunches at schools, they started serving bread instead of rice. Yeah, and kids actually started preferring Western-style food over traditional Japanese food. So the government actually campaigned to try to shift back towards a more rice-based diet. But even with their efforts, rice consumption still isn't as high as it was before World War II. Yeah, but I, I'd argue that might be a good thing. Because there was a time when... Rice was really the only option. You know, now there's all sorts of other side dishes you can have. Now you can have more options. Rice is still very heavily featured, and I think always will be. But tradition, Paul, tradition. Let's stay with the old ways of doing things. Uh, because we should it's all just live and... as half starved peasants for eternity, right? I mean, that wasn't all of Japanese history, <laughs> just a lot of it. Anyway. So these days, rice is slowly declining in popularity due to a more diverse diet, like you said, Paul. Uh, the popularity of low-carb diets, that means less rice, and like I said, the shift to a more Western diet. But 
the Japanese government still heavily subsidizes rice production, as we will see. Kind of fascinating stuff there, too. The Japanese government heavily regulates and controls the rice industry. Yeah, they have a very strong hold on it, for sure. Last fun fact I have for history is that most recently, brown rice is making a bit of a resurgence compared to white rice for health-related reasons. Yep. So let's talk a bit, Jason, about the cultural significance of rice in Japan. Okay. Which we've already hinted at a bit. Yeah. Rice has, of course, been hugely important in Japan for a very long time. We talked in our Matsuri episode, episode 22, about how the earliest festivals in Japan revolved around rice cultivation. They would have harvest festivals, they would pray to the kami for a good harvest, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Shintoism and rice are so heavily intertwined with each other. When you go to a shrine and you see all the casks of sake donated by the breweries to be a pray for a good harvest next year. Yeah, sake goes back to some of those earliest festivals too. People would be drinking sake at those. Yeah. And the fact that sumo wrestling itself comes out of a Shinto festival involving rice. Mm -hmm. There's even a specific kami of rice. Inari, perhaps you've heard of. One of the most popular kami. About one third of all shrines in Japan are Inari shrines. Which is crazy. That's so many. Yeah. So sake is a common offering made to the kami at shrines, but also just rice. Um, so, you know, rice and then the drinkable form of rice. And we talked a little bit more about sake in episode 91, if you want to hear all about that. Another thing that's made from rice is mochi. Yep. That's another important spiritual symbol. Check out episode 67 to hear more about mochi. But rice, I mean, there are many forms. You know, rice can be processed in a bunch of different ways. And rice in its many forms often appears in traditional dishes for all sorts of special occasions, too. Birthdays, weddings, New Year's. Actually, I was at the Asian market recently, and I almost got a kagami mochi for New Year's. Yeah. One of the little, uh, you know, the two balls of mochi, one on top of the other. They have a bunch of versions of those that you can get. Oh, wow. Yeah. So here's another thing I did not know, is that the ropes that you sometimes see at Shinto shrines... Like twisted ones, right? Yeah. They're kind of hanging up above the main area. Yeah, they might be hung across a Tory gate or in other places of significance. They're said to ward off evil spirits. They're made of rice straw. I did, I did not imagine that. I knew that. You're a smart guy. Uh, there was this show on Netflix that talked about traditional Japanese stuff, and they taught me that. They actually had this like... There are craftsmen that make those things, you know, because sometimes they get insanely huge. Yeah. So they showed this guy, he had like these huge ropes of rice straw that he was kind of braiding together for those. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. The word gohan means cooked rice, but also means meal. I think that shows how intertwined rice is with just food in general in Japan. Yep. The words for breakfast, lunch, and dinner are. Asa gohan, morning rice. Hiru gohan, like midday rice. And ban gohan, which is your evening rice. <laughs> and did you know how much stuff they make out of that straw? Like beyond just the ropes? 
No, what else do they make? Tatami. Oh, yeah. Okay. They make sandals. Sure. Yep. Those old-fashioned raincoats. Yep. The that kappa, right? kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And thatched roofs. I guess that totally makes sense. I don't know why that didn't click in my brain that they're getting the straw from rice yeah. to make that stuff. But all those old style thatched roof houses, it's rice. That's cool. It reminds me of the bamboo episode, how we talked about how like you can <laughs> eat the bamboo, you can make things with the bamboo, you can yeah. wear the bamboo. Thousand and one different uses for bamboo. Between rice and bamboo. Got everything you need. Yep. Paul, did you read anything about the kanji for rice patty? I learned some interesting things about that. No, I didn't. Okay, so get this. The kanji for rice patty. Uh, well, back up a little bit. Kanji is like the symbol. Kanji, are, that's one of the Japanese writing systems. The character. The these character are, for rice. Yeah, these are the characters that originally came from China and were adapted into the Japanese language. Anyway... So the kanji for the rice patty basically looks like a square with like a plus sign in the middle. So it's got like these four quadrants, right? It's just like a square divided into four quadrants. Okay. So it basically looks like a bird's eye view of a rice patty. Ah. Uh, And it's pronounced in Japanese as ta or den. And it's super common to see that kanji as a part of family names. Okay. Ones that you've probably heard of, like Tanaka. Tanaka means in the paddy field. <laughs> Nakata means middle paddy field. Kawara means river paddy field. Or Furuta, which means old paddy field. They were all just rice farmers. Yep. Actually, in the early Meiji period, which would be late 1800s, there was an edict that everyone had to have a family name. Before that, people could just have like one name. So since almost three quarters of the population of Japan were farmers at the time, many of them chose names relating to their profession or where they lived. Makes sense. I love that. Now, Paul, I want to talk about the types of rice for a bit. Okay. And... This stuff gets complicated. Like, it, this was probably the hardest part of my research. I spent so much time cross-referencing different things and figuring out, like, how are all these types of rice related and all that? You know what I mean? Okay. So Did you, you not dig into that? I, I did not go that deep. It I don't was, blame you. It was too much. So enlighten me, Jason. All right. I'll try to, I mean, I think I more or less made sense of it. So to start with, there are over 120,000 varieties of rice. I'm going to talk about each one of them. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But I was actually surprised that not all of those varieties of rice are the same species. Really? Yeah. Like most types of rice are varietals of a certain species, but there are other grains that we still call rice, even though technically it's not the same species as most rice. Did those come in more recently, do you know? Or does that go way back too? Actually, those other types of rice, a lot of them go back even further than what we normally think of as rice. So, for example, uh, Minnesota wild rice, right? Sure. Like here, Minnesota, I don't know, we're kind of known for wild rice, I guess. There's a certain type of rice that's like really long grains and it's really dark and kind of almost crunchy. Like it's it's not as soft. It's a little crunchy. Yeah. I actually had wild rice for dinner. Oh, just today? Leftovers from uh, Saturday. Mm. So that type of rice, Minnesota wild rice, is from the species Zizania 
palustris, which is not even directly related to domesticated rice. Well, I guess I'm not too surprised since it's from the Americas versus Asia. I guess. But most of the rice cultivated around the world today, even in the U.S., is of the species Oryza sativa, also known as Asian rice. Okay. So in the world of Asian rice, there are two major subspecies of Asian rice, Japonica and Indica. Okay. So you may have Indica recognized- Indica as in Indian? Well, geez. Did I you spoil you it? You spoiled my joke, Paul. Uh, oh, you had a joke. <laughs> well, I mentioned a couple words that some people might recognize, Indica and Sativa. You know, I was going to be like, oh, Paul, you, have yeah. you heard of those? Oh, uh, those things mean different things to me. What do they mean to you? Um, something about how many, uh, branches on the leaf, uh, might indicate which is which. I don't know what you're talking about, but basically sativa. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> no idea. Sativa just means cultivated. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. And then indica just means from India as you totally spoiled uh, <laughs> a few seconds ago. When I was thinking about different rices, I was thinking like basmati rice is so different. From like Japanese short grain rice. I felt like maybe that was the differences. Yeah. Okay, so what did I say? We have Japonica and Indica. So Japanese rice is of the species Oryza sativa under that subspecies Japonica. So the rices in this subspecies are sticky and short grained, unlike the non sticky long grained Indica varieties. Exactly like you were saying, Paul. And actually, those types, the long-grained indica ones, are much more common worldwide. Okay. Uh, the plants themselves are also shorter than indica varieties. Hmm. I actually saw in India, they have these like deep water rice varieties. Really? Where they grow them in super, super deep water, and they have like canoes to go by oh, wow. and like check on them and stuff. I might have something about that later. Anyway, okay, so even within the Japonica subspecies, there are a range of varieties. Mm -hmm. A lot of these varieties are the types of rice that would be eaten in Japan, like if you were to make sushi or just eat a bowl of rice with your meal. And a lot of these varieties can be used to make other things, like sake. But there are also other varieties in the Japonica subspecies known as glutinous rice. Yes. What do you know about glutinous rice, Paul? Glutinous rice is... Really sticky rice. Uh, and you use it to make mochi. You do. So I want to address that term sticky rice because a lot of people just talk about all like Japanese rice as sticky rice. It's not a very precise term. When you're talking about sticky rice, you could be talking about like sushi rice or you could be talking about glutinous rice, which is like a completely different thing. So it's kind of a term you have to be careful with. Glutinous rice is not normally eaten plain in yeah. Japan. So there are some dishes that use it plain, but more often this is the type that's used to make mochi because it's super sticky. And the reason it's super sticky is due to its large amount of amylopectin. Another thing I want to point out about glutinous rice is that it does not have gluten in it. Correct. No rice has gluten. It is naturally gluten-free. That is rather confusing, but that's how it is. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about or just really quick list a few of the most popular varieties of rice for eating in Japan. Okay. If that's all right. Yeah. Paul, have you heard of Koshi Hikari? No. I've talked about it before in the podcast. 
So you have, but then, I don't blame then, you for forgetting. Then yes, but I forgot. <laughs> That's fair. So this type is by far the most popular rice in Japan. Okay. The name translates to Light of Koshi. Koshi was an ancient province that spanned between Fukui and Niigata prefectures way back when. This variety was first cultivated in 1956 in Fukui Prefecture and has a rich taste and a firm, sticky texture. Mm. Best suited for hearty meals and popular for sushi. Okay. Another popular one is, oh, by the way, Koshi Hikari is what I always buy. That's what I'm looking for at the Asian market when I'm buying rice. Okay. So if you want to eat like a Japanese person, go buy that. Uh, Another one is called Akita Komachi. This was developed in 1975 as a cross between Koshi Hikari and local rice varieties in Akita Prefecture. Can't go wrong with Akita rice. It's true. Have you ever had this? Not that I recall or no. I actually got, I was gifted a bag of this because I was really, I asked for it because I was really curious to try it and see how different it was from Koshi Hikari. I mean, it's similar, of course, because it was, a cross between Koshi Hikari and other stuff, but it does have its own like character that is kind of more, I really enjoy the texture. I think that's the main thing is the texture is a little more pleasing, like more chewy. Okay. Anyway, um, so Akita Prefecture is up at the north end of Honshu, so it gets colder up there. So this type of rice was developed to have an enhanced resistance to weather and disease. And like I said, the chewy texture, that's what it's known for. It's great for bentos and onigiri. Okay. Another one, Sasanishiki, is from Miyagi Prefecture originally. It was first produced in 1963, and it's known for its soft texture, glossy finish, and sweet flavor. They say this one is ideal for sushi because it keeps the same taste even when cooling down. Oh. And sushi is, of course, eaten at like room temperature. You don't eat hot sushi rice. Right. It's crazy to me how, just in all farming, that they develop strains for everything because the conditions are so much different you know like every little latitude has its own environmental factors that it has to deal with but then there's sometimes on terrace farms on the mountain now you have elevation and that changes which rice grows well and they these farmers have been experimenting and breeding for literally thousands of years to come up with these strains that grow the absolute best in these precise conditions. Yeah. It's crazy. And then once you got that special rice, you got to give it a name. Yeah. And that's how you end up with 120,000 plus <laughs> varieties of rice. Yeah. It's it so confusing. So those ones I mentioned, those are some of the more popular ones, but there are a bunch of other varieties of rice that come from various parts of Japan. So if you travel around Japan, like pay attention to that rice you're eating in different places and see if you can detect the differences. Before we move on, there was one more type of rice that I wanted to talk about. Paul, have you heard of Calrose rice? Yeah. You see that label on bags in the Asian markets around here? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Super popular around here. Yes. So most sushi restaurants in the United States use Calrose rice, but it's not actually Japanese rice, nor is it even short grain rice, <laughs> which, you know, all pretty much all of the rice in Japan, I mean, it's short grain rice. Calrose is a medium grain rice from California. That's where the Cal part of that name comes from. So that's another way that American sushi is not the same as sushi in Japan. And actually, 80% of the rice grown in California is Calrose. 
It's super popular. Mm-hmm. It's I, good. I like it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the way you said that, the look on your face. It's fine. I'll eat my koshihikari. It's fine unless you want to eat good sushi. <laughs> no, I'm just total, you know, I'm that much of a Japan nerd that I'm like, elitist about the rice that i eat yeah sure it's not that you're a perfectionist and you do that with everything i do kind of do that with everything. <laughs> in, a, in a good way thanks <laughs> um but okay this is a really fun fact about calrose at one point calrose rice was extremely popular in korea oh because it was seen as exotic ah okay funny? So popular, there was actually a black market for it. They smuggled huge amounts of Calro's rice into Korea. Wow. Korea is obsessed with their rice in the modern day. I remember you saying that before. Yeah, like South Korea. They're, they are 100% convinced that their rice is the best rice in the world, and they basically don't export it. Like, you can only get it in South Korea. Yeah. And we were at, a, I think, a temple there. And there was this rice that was supposed to be like the best rice. And they sell it in these little bags for like 10 bucks. And my mom bought one and she was like trying to take it with her. And they were like, no, 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 you have to give that as an offering. We only sell that for you to give as an offering to the temple. So you couldn't actually get the rice. Wow. I, I wondered too, like, what do they do with that? Like, do they feed the monks or do they just walk it right back to the store and sell it <laughs> to the next person? Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, like that attitude made this so much funnier to me that they were obsessed with this Calrose rice. You know, oh man, American rice. Let's get our hands on that stuff. Yeah. Must have been a trendy thing. Another one of those things that just makes it feel like economics is completely random. Like you can't predict how people are going to react to new products and stuff. Yeah. People just go crazy over some random thing and it becomes this whole big economic movement, you know? With the black market, it makes it sound like they must have tariffs on rice or something trying to protect their own markets. Mm, Perhaps. So they couldn't import enough, but people wanted it. So they found a way. That would make sense given what we're about to talk about with (laughs) Japan's rice industry. (laughs) Right. So, Paul, how about that rice industry, huh? It's fascinating. Sure is. Uh, If you don't mind, I have a few stats to start us off here. Oh, let's get in. We're finally getting to stats. Japan is the ninth largest producer of rice in the world. I'm actually not blown away by that. That's honestly maybe less than I expected. I guess. I mean, it's, it's such a mountainous country that there's not a ton of farmland, you know? That's probably the biggest factor. Yeah. I was just thinking, like, population-wise. You think rice is being right. such a staple in Japan, 100 plus million people. There's only so many countries, although maybe it, maybe it does make sense. Anyways, next, next stat. Next stat. There are about 2.3 million farms in Japan, about 85% of which grow rice. That one blows me away. I didn't even say the mind-blowing part yet. That's more farms than the United States has. And think about how much farmland there is in the U.S. Yeah. Like the entire Midwest is 95% farmland. Yes. Well, here's how you explain that. The typical American farm is 160 times larger than your average Japanese farm. 
That does explain it. That's a difference, ain't it? <laughs> yeah. People in Japan farm on very small pieces of land, and most farmers in Japan only farm part-time. I thought that was really interesting, too. Just yeah. come home from your day job and you're like, well, better go hang out in the field for a bit. Take care of that rice. Yeah, because their farm's about like a football field size. You can't live off the money you get from that farm. And these days, actually, most of those rice farmers are over 65 years old. Yeah. But still over 2 million. Like, even if only one person worked every farm, that's still like 2% of the Japanese population. Like, that seemed kind of high to me. I don't know. Yeah. I guess because they're so small. Yeah. And I mean, rice farming has been such a big part of the Japanese identity, you know? for so long that I get the sense that they are really trying to hold on to that. Yeah. I didn't make a direct comparison. I just wanted to throw out 2.3 million farms in Japan. The U.S. has just about 2 million. Okay. So not a huge difference in number, but they do beat us by a bit. Yeah, well, a lot more land here. Yes. Well, there is a reason for the amount of farms in Japan, and it's because in the post-World War II land reforms, you know, the Japanese government decided to keep farms fragmented and small. They don't let conglomerates own farmland. You, if you own the farmland, you have to farm it yourself. Yeah. I read a bunch about that. I thought it was really interesting. Like before the war, all this farmland was owned by landlords. And then they had tenant farmers that farmed it for them. But after the war, the government, of course, now working with the American occupation, they forced those landlords to sell their land to the government, and then the government resold that land to the individual farmers. Here's just what I wonder. I guess I, I shouldn't go into politics, but I am. How come our government can decide to do that in another country, but we're never going to do that here? Because they support the rich people here <laughs> oppressing the poor. Oh, I didn't want a real answer, bro. I didn't want a real answer. <laughs> because they profit off of it. That's, the, that's always the answer is because they profit. It's just so funny to me that we know how. Like the way that the German and Japanese economy were rebuilt like so quickly and so well after World War II that like, oh, we know how to create a good economy if we want to. And we just like choose not to like do that ourselves. It's an interesting thing. Interesting, yes. But I guess that's not the, the topic today. We, we should move on. Sure. So yeah, basically they wanted to limit the amount of land owned by a single household to the amount of land that could be farmed by that household on their own, like without outside help. So as Paul mentioned, corporations aren't allowed to own farmland in Japan now. It's all owned by either independent farmers or co-ops. They do still allow co-ops. Yeah, as long as the co-op works the farmland themselves. Right. So as I was getting at, Japan is proud of their rice and their heritage around rice. And a lot of people in Japan think that their rice is better than rice from other countries. Yes. Japan also likes the idea of being self-sufficient when it comes to rice. I think that's smart. I think so too. So all of these factors have, of course, impacted and helped shape Japan's economic policies around their rice industry, which I would describe as protectionist. Yeah. I think that makes sense, though, with the globalist economy. The globalist economy helps you become rich, but if you're relying too much on food imports and fuel prices go up 
and now food prices skyrocket because of that or there's a war in a breadbasket country and now imports are all messed up and people start going hungry like i don't think you want to be at the mercy of the global supply chain when it comes to staple foods i think that's a valid position paul but there are consequences because of the tariffs and the rules that they have in place to protect the rice industry that makes other countries like America, for example, not like that because right. we want to sell our rice to Japan. So then we respond with tariffs on Japanese industries and it hurts them in other areas. So yeah. they, they take the hit to be able to protect their rice industry. Mm -hmm. I have some more details if that's... Let's, let's dig in. <laughs> we, is this let's this dig isn't in. getting too deep. Okay. I love geopolitics, Jason. So in 1999... Japan introduced a big rice tariff scheme to protect the domestic rice industry. Scheme, I love that name. Because <laughs> there was so much cheap imported rice available. Like, if they wanted to, they could have gotten so much rice for super cheap. But they actually made a ban on importing rice to Japan unless it's in a processed form. They do still import rice in the form of, like, mochi cakes and rice flour and things like that. But just yeah. buying rice to eat, they don't do that. It's all grown in Japan. And the Japanese government also subsidizes the rice industry, as I mentioned earlier. Sounds familiar. These subsidies go back to the Staple Food Control Act of 1942. This act basically put the government in charge of rice production, distribution, and sales. It gave them the power to like oversee all of that and do whatever they needed to or wanted to, <laughs> to yeah. kind of shape it to their will. So this act was actually put in place because of those rice shortages during the war that we talked about. To encourage people to grow more rice, the government bought the rice from the farmers at higher prices and then sold it to special rice dealers at lower prices. And over time, like that rationing system eventually kind of transformed into the rice subsidies that last until today. Yeah. But then I started to get so confused because it's like, over time, they were constantly tweaking things. You know what I mean? So in 1969, they actually started asking farmers to reduce their rice acreage to prop up the market prices. Right, so they didn't have to do it themselves. But they subsidized these farmers to do that, so they were still spending money to do it. Yeah, so they didn't just tell people, like, you're, you're done, you can't grow rice anymore. They actually pay people to grow things that aren't rice. Yes. So there are like all these subsidies going around to different it's, types of farmers and it's stuff. It's exactly the same way here. Yeah. It gets complex, all that stuff. It does. Farmers seem to always wield a lot of political influence for some reason. I mean, they're feeding the masses, I guess. Yeah. Very important, right? Yeah. Your government doesn't last long if people are starving. Well, should we move along to cultivation oof my notes for this <laughs> section are long <laughs> i tried to keep it like really short and sweet but it's all so interesting though yeah i know i i have it kind of by season me too okay i start with spring is that where you start sure but first can we just talk about rice patties for a minute yeah so most japanese rice is farmed in patties you've probably heard of these things you might even have a picture in your head of what they look like yeah uh, I've seen a lot of pictures of like terraced patties that are built over inclines. Yeah. Like in hillier mountainous areas. Which is most of Japan. Yeah. They will kind of have different levels 
of patties going up the mountain or hill, but within each patty, it's flat. Yeah. Because it needs to contain water. Rice patties can also be located in valleys, though. They don't Mm -hmm. have to be terraced like that. So spring, yeah, what happens in spring? Well, the seedlings are actually grown separately in a greenhouse to start with. Yeah, they don't plant rice seeds. They plant rice shoots. Right. So you got to get all your thousands and thousands of little rice seeds growing in a warehouse. This is actually one thing that makes Japanese rice farming much different than Western rice farming. I thought this was really cool. The reason that they grow those little like six inch tall seedlings before they plant them in Japan is to get higher yields out of a more limited space. So we talked about those farms in Japan, they're really tiny, right? So planting the seedlings instead of seeds, while it's more labor intensive, it lets them pack those plants much closer together. America has so much farmland, they don't really care. It's not worth it to take those extra steps. But in Japan, they can produce almost 70% more rice on an equal amount of land by using this method. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's awesome. So while your seedlings are growing, you've got to prepare your patty, right? And get it ready to go for planting. Probably want to plow and irrigate that thing, right? Yeah. So the standard method seemed to be to me is you would flood the field to get it. or I'm sorry, you would plow the field first to get nice and torn up, and then you flood the field, and then you plow it again. Okay. That would make sense. Flood it in not so that it's like a foot of standing water, but that's so it's like really muddy. Yeah, it is Like super muddy. six inches of mud if you're walking through it. That surprised me a little bit because I think in, a, in the last episode, I mentioned that game that I had been playing. It's called uh, Sakuna of Rice and Ruin, I believe is the name of the game. And a lot of the gameplay is based around farming rice. So I'd kind of been going through this process in, in the virtual world. And in the game, it's like you got the dirt. And then when you fill it up with water and it's kind of like blue water, you know, it looks relatively clear. But when I watched videos on YouTube of people planting the rice shoots and this stuff, it looks like brown water. Yeah. Like it looks very yeah. muddy. Yeah. So traditionally, these seedlings would be planted by hand. People would walk into those patties barefoot. So the whole village would get together, go row by row, singing planting songs. Yeah, going back to that communal farming idea. Just thinking about people doing that makes my back hurt. Yeah, right. (laughs) I saw that they would actually use that mud from the patty to cover their skin to protect them from bugs and the sun. Oh, that's smart. But of course, most rice these days is planted using machines. Although in a lot of places in Japan, they do still have community events where people get together and plant seedlings together, uh, both to kind of foster that sense of community and also to teach youngins about traditional farming methods. Because like I said, they don't want to lose... Like, hey, this is where our entire culture came from. (laughs) Learn it. Exactly. Dude, the machines they have these days... Tell me about them. Blew me away. It's this big tractor they're riding that's probably like 10 feet wide, and they just take these big trays of seedlings, and they just load them into the back of the machine, and there's about six feet of seedlings on the back of the machine, and as they drive, 
there's all these little spinning wheels like every six inches or so that somehow grab a single little seedling, stick it in the mud and just spin around and they just, they drive down like at five miles an hour and just planted, turn around, planted. It's crazy how fast it goes. It was crazy. I saw some videos of that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, they, that's a amazing machine. You do the labor of like a hundred people easily. You know, it'd probably take a hundred people all day to plant a field that size. And they do it like an hour with this machine. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So we didn't mention, I think, why rice is grown in flooded patties. What's, what's the point of flooding these things? What is the point? A lot of it is it prevents a lot of weeds from growing. Ah. Most plants can't survive in those conditions. Uh, rice doesn't have to be grown in water, actually. And around the world, a lot of rice is actually grown dry. Yeah. I was looking and I was like, they don't talk about weeding really at all. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's why. There are some plants that can grow in the water along with the rice, but not a lot of them. So you kind of get rid of a lot of the weeds that would pop up. And then I think there are certain pests too that won't get to the rice when it's in the water like that. Yeah, sure. I thought uh, watering was kind of interesting too. I guess it makes sense, but after they plant, they actually drain the fields to allow the roots to like get into the ground. But when they water it, they just flood the field again and then let it drain. Yeah. And they don't have sprinklers or anything. They whoop, flood the field, it gets all the water it needs. Right. Before I started playing that video game, I always thought like they just have a constant level of water in there like why would it even matter the amount of water? Because as long as it's enough for the plants, what's yeah, the big right. deal, right? It's just growing in water. Like yeah. it's not. But in that game, I learned like throughout the entire growth cycle of the rice, you're constantly monitoring that water level and adjusting it depending on what you need the plants to do. Yeah. Um, so I think we're starting to get into summer here a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. We're kind of getting there. So in the summer, the seedlings, of course, continue to grow into rice plants. and there are a lot of things that the farmer needs to pay attention to during this growing process. So we, are, we already touched on the water level. It's constantly changing too. Like you can't just flood the paddy and then leave the water alone. Like even if you did that, the water level would still change because it's going to rain. Water is going to evaporate. Water is going soak to soak in. It seeps into the ground on the bottom and even the sides of the paddy. And having too much or too little water can be a problem. There are diseases and pests that can attack your crop depending on where the water level is at. And even on top of that, you have to pay attention to the temperature. And if you add a bunch of cold water to your field, of course, that's going to cool down your rice and that might be bad for it. Or it could get too hot and maybe you want to add some cold water to cool it down, you know? So yeah. irrigation is way more complex than I realized at first. Right, especially before modern plumbing. You know, now every farm just has like access to water tubes. They turn on and off. But a few hundred years ago, they had to build these massive canal structures and things to run water all over the place to be able to flood these fields. It was a unbelievable undertaking by their society. Totally. I was reading some academic articles about like <laughs> rice irrigation and stuff over you, the years. You got deep. I mean, the water would come from like any nearby water source. They could get it from rivers, lakes, streams. 
and the type of water source would dictate how the irrigation system was built. Like they, they had to come up with all these ideas of ways to get the water into their field. But I mean, the most important part is they need a way to get more water into the paddy when necessary, but they also need a way to drain the paddy when necessary. So there's like a pipe running into it and then a pipe running out of it. And another thing I thought was really cool that I didn't realize about terraced paddies, one of the benefits of those terraced paddies is that they can drain water from the upper paddies into the lower ones. Yeah, just reuse the water all the way down. Yeah. That's cool. Another thing the farmer has to think about is fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And there are different types of fertilizer for the different stages of growth even. And I thought this was really cool. I know I keep saying that. I'm repeating myself. <laughs> There's so many cool things. It's all cool, bro. Yeah. It's all cool. Did you know that bamboo can be ground up and used as fertilizer? I didn't know that, but I guess it makes sense. I saw this video where they were like farming rice in the traditional way, and they had to actually clear out a bunch of bamboo for the paddy. And they were like, well, this bamboo isn't going to waste though, of course. We're going to grind up a bunch of it and use it for fertilizer. And Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they have to weed the paddy, of course. We mentioned that. And then they have to manage pests and disease. But it's not just about getting rid of all the animals in there. You don't want to just clear your, your rice paddy of all animal life. Yeah, you just got to get rid of the bad ones. Yeah. They're actually good animals that you want in your paddy because they eat the bad ones. Like frogs, pond snails, crayfish, dragonflies, apparently. All those can live symbiotically with the rice. Even ducks. I just got to a point in that game where you get ducks and then you can <laughs> let them loose into your patty and they eat all the bad stuff. Nice. Yeah, anything that doesn't eat the rice or trample it is probably going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, most of the bad animals are insects, yeah. I think. Yeah. And at the same time that all of these other animals are eating the bad animals, they're also fertilizing the patty with their poo. Hey, there you go. How cool is that? I really like just the sustainability of this style of farming, you know? Like in the U.S., you hear about habitats being destroyed to make room for more farmland. But in Japan, I actually read an article that talked about how removing rice paddies actually decreases biodiversity. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, rice paddy is environment. Yep. Yeah, I think this is part of what used to keep uh, the peasants so busy is the... Uh pest control and weeding throughout the growing season. Imagine if you didn't have access to like pesticide to be able to spray on things. You would be like literally out there picking bugs off your plants. Yeah. In that game, you actually run around your farm and like find frogs and pick them up and throw them into your patty. <laughs> nice. I saw a video of a modern farm that had this miniature helicopter that was remote controlled that they put like two, three gallon tanks of pesticide on and they flew it over their crop and just sprayed the whole thing in pesticide wow. in about five minutes. That's cool. Yeah, it was so cool. So another thing that happens in summer is that small white flowers will appear. You ever seen flowering rice? I have not. They only appear very briefly, right? I saw that they blossom for only about an hour. That's crazy. Yeah, it's not very long. I like to call this stage the rice orgy. Yeah, it all happens quick. Yeah. Like everything's getting fertilized within the hour. <laughs> yeah. 
they all pollinate each other using the wind. It's mm. not even insects that pollinate them. And I mean, this part of the process is super important because the rice that we eat is actually the seed of the plant. And plants don't make seeds if they're not pollinated. So this part is essential. Yeah. So after the pollination, it starts growing its seeds and takes about 40 days. Yep. Are we ready for autumn? Yeah. Harvest season. Those rice plants have been storing up all those nutrients in their seeds. The ears, they call them, the ears start to hang with the weight of those seeds. And then the char the charmer, no, the farmer, the farmer chops, not the charmer fops. <laughs> farmer chops the plants down. Uh, again, these days, usually that is done by machines or using machines anyway. Yep. And then the rice is dried. And we actually saw this happening, Paul, when we hiked a part of the Nakasendo in fall. We saw fields with the rice drying over these racks that they set up in the fields. I remember that. That's exactly how it happens in the video game, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was cool to see. Once the rice is dry, there's some processing that needs to happen before it's ready to cook and eat. Did you read much about threshing, Paul? No, no, I didn't. You know what threshing is? That's uh, like breaking the husk off? That would be dehulling, actually, oh, I believe. okay, okay. I was getting a little confused there because it seemed like threshing and dehulling maybe well, sometimes is, go together. Is threshing like getting the pod off of the stalk? Yes. Okay. Threshing removes the grains from the stalks. Dehulling is where the hull is removed, of course. The hull is the indigestible outer shell of a rice kernel. Mm -hmm. So even when you buy brown rice, that doesn't have the hull on it anymore. Yeah. These days, those processes, the threshing and dehulling, they're mechanized. But in that game, like I said, there are all these traditional tools that you could use to do that. And the most basic way, I mean, you could just take those uh, bunches of rice still on the stalk. You could just like shake that into a barrel and smack it against the sides and the rice grains will fall off. Okay. But there are a bunch of, bunch of different ways of doing it. Anyway, there's also winnowing. It comes after that. That's where you separate the rice grains from the chaff. The chaff is that leftover plant matter. So like if you're dehulling, then you got a bunch of those rice grains sitting in with a bunch of broken hulls. Got to separate those out. That's winnowing. Once you've taken the hulls off, you have brown rice. Paul, what makes brown rice brown? The fact that it's not polished yet. But what is the brown stuff? Uh, fiber? If there's fiber in there for sure. Okay. Uh, it's called rice bran. Okay. They call yeah. that stuff. Bran has all sorts of good, healthy things like dietary fiber, protein, essential fatty acids, vitamins and minerals, antioxidants. Just a lot of good stuff in there. So that's why brown rice is so good for you. Mm -hmm. Actually, in Japan, they use that rice bran to pickle vegetables. Yeah, I think I've seen that yeah. as an ingredient. Uh, I was also surprised to learn that brown rice has another thing still in there besides the bran. It still contains the germ. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know what the germ is? That's where like uh, it sprouts from, right? Yeah, that's the part of the grain that actually sprouts into a new plant. That's so all it, the best nutrients. Yeah. So if you really wanted to, you could actually buy organic brown rice, plant it in the ground, and grow your own rice. There you go. Isn't that crazy? I had no idea that like brown rice could sprout. 
Another fun fact. Have you heard of GABA brown rice? G-A-B-A? No. I've seen that on packages of rice. And I don't know, I heard, like, I thought it was something that was supposed to make it even more healthy, but I wasn't really sure about the details. But now I know. GABA brown rice is brown rice that's been allowed to germinate. Okay. So it actually starts to sprout. The GABA comes from gamma aminobutyric acid. It's supposed to be extra good for you. There's a lot of people out there that strongly believe in eating sprouted foods. Mm, yeah. Okay, so you have brown rice at this point. If you want white rice, what do you do, Paul? You got to polish it. Or mill it. I've seen both of those verbs used. Polish is more fun. Sure. What does it do? What, do? what are you doing with that process? You're basically just like rubbing it down until only the nice white part at the center remains. Oh, you mean the endosperm? <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, that's what it's called. I just want to eat a big bowl of endosperm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you've removed the bran and the germ and everything that's left. It's called the endosperm. And of course, from there, various types of rice can be further processed into all those other things that we talked about, like sake, episode 91, mochi, episode 67. You can make rice flour. You can make all sorts of stuff. Yes. Yeah, right between rice and bamboo. You said it, man. <laughs> it's, it's, all about, you need. it's about half of everything in Japan. Now we got our awesome rice. Sweet. We're just going to eat it dry? Crunch, crunch? I suppose we got to cook it, huh? It's probably going to taste better that way. There's a... There's just a few specific things you do to cook the best rice. Okay. I mean, on the most basic level, no matter what method you're using to cook your rice, you're basically just adding water and heat, right? Those are the main ingredients. That's it, yeah. You can use an oven, you can use a stove, you can use a microwave, any way to get heat in there. Yep. And then water, and then you're good. But, you know, microwaved rice is meh. Uh, never, never tried it, I think. Um, you want to wash your rice. Unless it's non-washed rice. Sure. How much do you wash it? I usually rinse it out like three times. I've heard that number before. I've also heard just wash it until the water runs clear. Yeah, that works. Removes impurities. Removes uh, potentially insects. Have you ever had insects in your rice, Paul? Mm, not that I recall. It happens. If it you does. like hold on to a bag of rice for a long time... And it can be really disturbing when you open up your rice and see these little black things crawling around. Yeah. I'm probably not just rinsing my rice at that point and calling it a day. Maybe that's just uh, my first world uh, weakness, but I'm probably tossing that rice and getting new, one, new rice. You. That's happened to me once, and I threw away the bag, and I felt very sad about it because it was that expensive Koshi Kati oh, rice. Oh, man. Yeah. Happens. It does. Uh, the easiest way to cook rice is just get a rice cooker. I would recommend that. And you just put in the rice, fill up to the line, and press the button, and you get great rice. And Japanese rice cookers are known as the best in the world. Okay. They come in different sizes with a wide range of features. A lot of the more basic ones just make rice and might only have one setting, but you can get ones that make all sorts of things in addition to rice. I have a rice cooker from the brand Zojirushi, Japanese brand. It has induction heating. It's got settings for white rice, brown rice, gaba rice, jasmine rice, sushi rice. It can make porridge. 
It even came with a recipe book with a bunch of different ideas. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, one step I missed, Jason, I can't believe I forgot what? to soak the rice. Yeah. It's recommended to soak your rice for 30 minutes to revive the texture before you cook it. That's true. To be honest, I miss that quite often because I want my rice soon and I'm not good at planning ahead that far. Right, right. But what do you do? It adds that little, little tiny extra. It does. And my rice cooker has two different timers that you can set so that you can just throw the rice in there and then tell it when oh, you want it done. So it'll soak it itself and then start up. Exactly. That's cool. Um, if you're not using a rice cooker. Can I say one more thing about rice cookers? Yes. If you get a rice cooker and maybe the manual has like some ideas of other things you can make, even outside of that, people get super creative with rice cookers. I mean, people have been using them for a long time all over the world. So there are a bunch of websites out there that will tell you how to like make bread in your rice cooker or use your rice cooker like a, like a slow cooker and make like a whole meal in there. You know, yeah, you can make, yeah. you can make curry just by throwing some ingredients in there and hitting start. It's kind of like a crock pot. A little bit, yeah. So if you're not using a rice cooker, the golden ratio is one part rice to about 1.1 to 1.2 parts water for white rice, for Japanese white rice. Okay. It's more water, I believe, for brown rice. That would make sense. In my rice cooker, it's got like, well, you said lines, right? Like yeah. on the bowl, it'll have lines for different types of rice. Yeah. So you just fill it up to that. And then mine even has settings, like for white rice, you can do the softer setting or the harder setting, depending wow. on how you like the texture of your rice. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty fancy. Fancy. And you definitely want to cook with a lid. Keep all that steam in there. Steam is important. And give it about 20 minutes. What I've seen too is that once your rice is cooked and you open up that rice cooker, you don't want to just scoop it out of there right away. Right. You want to like make an X in your rice and then kind of fluff it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you want to close the rice cooker again and let it just steam in there for a bit. That's how you get the perfect texture. Yeah, it removes excess moisture. I almost never do that because like when I smell that done rice, I'm ready to eat, man. Mm. If you soak for 30 minutes and then you cook it in your rice cooker and then you wait, like that's like too long. It's like now it's like an hour and a half. Like mm -hmm. I don't have time to wait an hour and a half after I get home to like eat my rice. If you want the perfect rice, that's what it takes. I'm willing to sacrifice. But I hope they're doing that at the restaurant that I'm paying for, right? <laughs> they better be. <laughs> Any other uh, rice cooking tips, Jason? No, I think I talked fast enough that we got through all of it in a reasonable amount of time. Is this a reasonable amount of time? It looks like it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you got nothing else to add on rice? Um, rice is tasty. Um, <laughs> go get that koshihikari rice. Get a fancy rice cooker and uh, live your life a little bit better than you were before. <laughs> there you go. Jason's words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I want to say thank you so much to our patrons, especially our Shogun-level patrons, Wesley C., Paula, Nicholas McKibben, Kevin Harris, Brady K., Jack, and a special holiday shout-out to Katerina and Ellery listening in Albuquerque. Thank you all so much for your support. Happy holidays, and thank you again for the support.
Uh, we're getting so close to our goal on Patreon, Paul. So everyone else out there, please consider signing up. It costs as little as $2 a month on the lowest tier. It really helps us out. But if you don't have $2 a month to throw to the podcast, you can also help us out by telling your friends about the podcast. Maybe you know somebody who likes Japan. Maybe you know someone who's been talking about going to Japan. That word of mouth. Love it. Yep. Well, Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we are going to dive into the city of Matsumoto. Matsumoto. Yep. They have a castle. Yes. Very famous castle. Very famous castle. So I believe this was your idea. Yes. How right was I? Before I praise you. Okay. I can wait. I was just thinking, like, there's so many different cities that we could talk about that we haven't talked about, and a lot of them are bigger than Matsumoto. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what made you gravitate towards the city of Matsumoto? Um, Partly, I liked its size. Like, the fact that it's a large city, but not a mega city. Okay. Um, I feel like maybe get more of that... Like, this is how real Japanese people live type of thing. Sure. Um, the castle, obviously, one of the original, one of the most impressive of the 12 original castles left in Japan. It is a gorgeous castle. The fact that it's situated in a valley in the middle of the Japanese Alps, mm-hmm. right smack dab in the middle of Honshu. Do we need to change our idea for our next trip and go to Matsumoto and Takeyama? Dude, I want to go so bad. Me too. Okay, I'll, I'll praise you now. It was a good, a good idea. Ah, oh, thank you, Jason. You're welcome. Put that on repeat on my headphones. <laughs> well, yeah, that'll be fun. Can't wait to talk about it. Same. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Um, um. Paul, I got one more thing before we move on. Oh? I made a thing. Uh, okay. So, you know, I, I made that like ad music, the little stinger, and then the background music. Yeah. I was just messing around with the background music, and uh, I want to see what you think of this. I mean, really, I was, I was really just messing around, and it might be just really stupid. Okay. But just let me know what you think. Okay. I feel like going on the what should I do? What should I do? Where should I go? Oh, I know. I'll go to Bento and Co. BentoandCo.com. I like it there. Cause I can buy stuff from Japan that I wouldn't normally be able to enjoy. I went there I mean you should still go there Cause it's fun and everything But sometimes you just can't go there And you still want to eat some Japanese food So you go to bentoandco.com And you buy some snacks You buy some ingredients So you can make food at home Authentic Japanese food at home 
got Yeah, we got a discount code For all of our listeners Because we love you so And we want to give you 10% off Your entire order That's pretty good savings And all you gotta do Is use our coupon code It's it's sightseeing 10 Sightseeing 10, that's right Cause the name of the podcast is Sightseeing Japan It's memorable It's Bro, this is from the soul In the name of the podcast And it's 10 Cause you get 10% off Did I mention that? It's 10% 10% off Your entire order just one item So that's even cooler The code one more time That's sightseeing 10 In case you forgot Or didn't hear Maybe it was obscured by the music You guys remember the code? Anyway There's another way to You don't even need the code Can you believe it? There's even an easier way Maybe you can choose whichever one you want that's easier. I don't know how you live your life. Bro, is this a full-length track? It's <laughs> <laughs> longer. This is anyway, long for the radio. The second method is if you go to our website. It's sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You gotta release this as a track. Go to the navigation bar at the top. Look for the page titled Support Us. Cause you all support us. And we really appreciate it. And we wanna give back to you. So we're giving you this coupon code. Anyway, once you're there at the support us page. Wanna scroll down and you'll see the affiliate links. Affiliate links, I say that means when you use our code or click this link, it's really helping us out. And we appreciate it and we love you so. Bento and Co, Bento and Co, I know that's the website where you can use our code. be great you'll live a life or you can experience japan culture and try their delicious food without even going there not that you wouldn't want to go there it's just easier toward things on the internet and make your own japanese food and feel like a boss Bentoandco.com.com.com. Don't forget that dot com. It has to be there, probably. Maybe you'd get there anyway, I'm not sure. It's worth a try, I guess. I think that's pretty much it. This is the best advertisement they're ever going to get, bro. This is amazing. Thanks.
So what should I do with this thing? <laughs> you got to release this I mean, on our just, feed as a track so people can listen to it just as a song. I was thinking I'd just stick it at the end of this, this episode as like a secret little hidden track, you know? I don't know. Let us know. Do you guys want this released? Do you want to hear this again? Well, they just heard it. So what's the point of releasing it again? So you can hear it again and again and again and again. Like as its own bonus episode type thing, you mean? Yeah, just as just this. Hmm. It's not too ridiculous and stupid. It's perfectly ridiculous and stupid. But it's also an ad. Do people really want to get a whole episode of ad? Um, if it's that beautiful, yes. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the uh, moral support there. <laughs> but man, I could tell you were just, you were singing from your soul there, bro. I'd warmed up my voice a little bit. That was after I did some karaoke, so I was okay, like, okay. I was in it. You know what this made me think, actually, is uh, when we did the podcast meetup, we did the karaoke afterwards. Yeah. Like, maybe I'm delusional, but I don't think I'm a bad singer, but I'm definitely not a good singer. You know, and I got up there and I did my thing and everyone's like, oh, yeah, okay. And then Jason goes and sings like that. And everybody's just like, damn, he can actually sing. Oh, such a flatterer. You're always saying such nice things. I remember the end of the night when, when we got the comment like, oh, Jason, you were you were so good at singing. Uh, and Paul, you, you sung too. What? Yeah. Where? What? Yeah, when? from, uh, from uh, Jesse. When we were like leaving at the end of the night, they said something oh, like oh. that. Oh, Jason, you were great. Oh, and Paul, you were there too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think and, that was it. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. You, you, you're too you're, hard on yourself. You're getting Paul. better at singing. You were always a good singer, but that's the best I've ever heard you sound. Wow, thank you. That was great. To be honest, actually, the the like inflection you had, the way you were singing, it it was good. Bro. I mean, I've been practicing a ton just in the form of karaoke because. I, I love it. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, when I was working in the music industry, it was like, I made music stressful for myself, trying to make it as good when as it's it a could job, be. right? Yeah. You know? But now I'm learning to like, refine my l- love of music and the joy of music, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's your niche, doing the funny stuff. Because then it, you don't have to feel like it has to be perfect because it's purposely not perfect. It does kind of take the pressure off. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I, I'm glad you shared that.